How did he open your eyes? The question is asked four times in John 9 when a man is healed by Jesus. It hangs over that whole story as if to say, if you can answer this, then you will know how your own eyes could be opened. Well, some of you in the last month has, have been talking to me about how uh, your eyes are being opened. I've gotten emails from you and phone calls and notes saying that this happened or that happened. You need to go on YouTube and look up in chroma glasses. And have you heard about blind spots? And so this has been a, really a month of this. And the beauty of it has been that I've learned far more than I've ever taught. Uh, so what I'll do in a moment is kind of review some of what you've taught me, most of what I'll say you've not heard before. Uh, but it's just, it's just been exciting to hear. You guys, I have not been jazzed up about this series because it's hard, it's, it's not real practical, it's not linear, and yet what I found is everybody knows what we're talking about here. Uh, we're just finding different words to say it. I received uh, an email when I was in Asbury about a week ago from one of our members, Deb Hendricks. Uh, let me read it to you. You'll see what I mean. My daughter Anna received a thousand-piece puzzle for Christmas. <laughs> That's not a gift. She... <laughs> she and I started working on it last week. I was having a hard time getting started. It was a puzzle of some cartoon characters I was unfamiliar with, and there were many shades of brown that were just slightly different from each other. After sitting five to ten minutes a couple of different times, I told Anna that the puzzle was too hard. I couldn't make sense of it. I didn't know how to start. <laughs> but because it was something we could do together, and she was wanting me to continue, I agreed to see the puzzle to completion. Wait for the next line. A funny thing happened as soon as I committed to the puzzle. First, I sat down a few times and worked an hour or so, thanks to delays and cancellations. And I found that the longer I looked at the pieces of the puzzle, I became more familiar with the pieces. I could begin to see the nuances of the pieces. And as I studied the picture on the box and the pieces in front of me, I started to make sense of it. At times, when I was looking at a missing piece of the puzzle, I would remember that I had seen that exact piece I was looking for. I'd locate it in the box, and then I'd put it in. Other times, I would see a piece in the box and then remember where in the puzzle it would go. The more I worked on the puzzle, the more I wanted to work on the puzzle, as I could see the whole puzzle starting to fit together. One night, as momentum was growing between Anna and I, pieces were going in left and right. We worked an hour longer than we intended, and we finished the puzzle. She has another thousand-piece puzzle for us to start. I have a feeling that the same sense of confusion and frustration might be there as we start. The difference is I have confidence that if we stick with it, in the end, we will be successful. So I made a commitment to start studying the Bible in this fashion. Of course, I'm already familiar with some of the verses or the pieces, and I've been able to apply them several times. That's the puzzle. But I'm hoping that the more I commit, 
the more pieces I will see, the more applications I will make, and the more things that are unseen to me now will become seen. So what I've done in the last month is just collect some of the things that people have said and gone back and um, put them into places where I've been studying, thinking about this. I feel like my own eyes are being opened more and more as I do this. And so I've asked for this smart board one more time. So there's at least one intelligent thing on the platform and <laughs> decided that I'm going to review some of what we've said. Most of this will be new, I hope. I started out a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, talking about a pyramid that works like this. I'm not going to get into that now. The rest of the series, I focused on this top part of the pyramid right here, and I tried to zoom in on that and say there's something else at the top that might move us from seen to unseen. In this pyramid, I said there were three parts. One was assumptions. We see what we look for. The dominant assumption in America right now is that the heavens are closed, that we are on our own. We are, as Walt Brueggemann put it, self-invented, working our way to self-sufficiency. In between starting with self-invention and ending with self-sufficiency is a lifetime of pervasive anxiety about being enough, having enough, or being in control. What if we're wrong about those assumptions? If you were educated as I was in the American education system, this is exactly what you believe. That God may have created the world, we're not sure. But if he did, he has stepped back and the world now runs on a series of laws. Every now and then, God may step in, maybe, to do really big things. But he does not, for the most part, step in every day. That part is up to us. So he made you, he loves you, but the rest is up to you until you get to heaven someday. What if we're wrong? What if the heavens are open? What if Jesus is right? My Father is always working, and I am working too. What if he means that to a level higher than we've ever imagined? Suddenly, things start to change. The assumption has changed. God is more active. He may be seen in ways that he was invisible before. So some of you of the more Pentecostal persuasion, I might add, have taught me that a lot of what I consider coincidence is in fact a movement of God. Not everything is a movement of God. I get that, but I may have been far too conservative in my estimation of what God can really do, of what 
he cares about, of the level of activity in this world. I may have vastly underestimated him. This week, I was sitting in the office, working through some things in my head, frustrated, fretting on some things. Wrong, this was wrong. And in the middle of this, the music was playing, you know, it's like white noise, I can't hear a thing. And in the middle of this thing, uh, the song changed. And this dude just starts playing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And I had the thought, Grace. I forgot about grace. I had the thought. Romans 5. Then I thought, I know what Romans 5 says. I know what this says. Move on. Get back to the fretting. There's work to do. I open Romans 5, and there at the end of Romans 5 it says, Just as sin reigns in death, so does grace reign in righteousness and brings life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you right now because you didn't need it. But if you were sitting where I was sitting at just the right time, that's coincidence unless the heavens are open. Still tracking? Interruptions. A lot of what I consider interruptions might in fact be something that God is doing. Interruptions are people or things that I need or people or things that need me. But they are not in my schedule and I live a fairly regimented life. I have routines because I know that's how the sausage gets made. And so I don't like to go out of my system and my routines. And every once in a while, God will drop things in my life, which I consider interruptions. But I'm starting to learn that the interruptions might actually be the ministry. Meetings with agendas, routines, systems, strategies, plans, visions... These are interruptions. What if the real is occurring in things we consider just a moment? I have a friend who walks streets, and this is what he does now for ministry. He didn't always used to be a preacher. <laughs> he was in Nashville recently walking streets. He said, while I was down there, Steve, walking on the street, a man came up to me. And he asked if he could play some Johnny Cash. <laughs> so I said, sure, presuming he wanted money for it. So he said he started to play, this is him, he started to play Folsom Prison Blues. And then after he was through with that, he said, let me play something else. And he started to play something else, and he got halfway through it, and then he, he, he stopped and said, man, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not real good at this. I play like beep. And... Um, my, my friend said, wait a minute, you're fine, you play well. Then he said, and this will make some of you uncomfortable, he said, God loves the smell of crap. Man said, I wasn't always this way, I, 
I had a wife, I had some kids, I lost my wife and I lost my kids and now I end up on the street, I don't know how I got here. So he said, I gave him money, I prayed with him, I told him he was more valuable than he knew, that God loved him before and apart from anything else. He sent me these pictures, he sent me a text, I sent him a text back that just said, and they said to Jesus, when did we see you playing Johnny Cash? And playing like crap. And Jesus said, remember the guy in Nashville? So the man called me on the phone and he was sobbing. He said, Steve, I've been a preacher for 20 years and I can't preach. <laughs> I didn't say anything. He said, uh, Tonight I found myself. When I'm on the streets working with people like this, I'm alive. There is something in me that I have for them that I don't have for anybody else. I have found myself. I am free. I have this. And the thought occurred to me, all of this happened with a walk-by question, can I play something for you for lunch? That's an interruption. But if you follow it long enough, it leads to a God moment. There were uh, appropriate words at times that people say to us and that sounds like something somebody else is saying, but if you listen closely to what people are saying, they might be channeling something God is saying to you. Now, I know it looks like them and it sounds like them, but it could be that God has been trying to get something through to you. A long time. And so I have found people saying things to me in the last month that probably weighed more than I would have weighed it before seen to unseen. Let me stop there. On this side of the pyramid or the triangle, I put habits. Somewhere in his lecture, The Seeing Eye, uh, C.S. Lewis says that there was in years past almost impossible to miss the work of God. But he says, in our own time and place, it's extremely easy. Just avoid silence, avoid solitude, avoid any train of thought that leads off the beaten path. Instead, concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, on your own grievances. Keep the radio on. Live in a crowd. Use plenty of sedation. If you must read, select it carefully. But you'd be better off just sticking to the papers or the news channels, one might add, to Twitter or Facebook. You'll find the advertisements helpful, especially those with a sexy or snobbish appeal. The thought occurred to me as I was reading that, that those are, in fact, our habits. They are, in fact, our habits. That's how we spend our day. From the moment we get in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night, our day is filled with social media and with technology, so there is hardly a moment in there for anyone who is not directly in front of us to say anything that we would hear. Why? God would have to virtually kick the door in and write something on the wall. And even then, we might think, so, so, do you see what I'm saying? So we need other habits. So I mentioned the habit of Scripture, becoming more familiar with Scripture. And by this I mean memorization. 
I mean committing to memory as much because it makes the scripture portable to you. You don't have to have it in front of you. I can walk down the sidewalk now. I can drive in my car and I can cite scripture to myself without having to have the Bible open. I can sit and wait for the meeting to begin and without looking into the face of my my. MacBook <laughs> and ignoring everybody on both sides of me, I can start citing scripture and it helps me to focus on it. On the other side of that is solitude and meditation. Once I understand and I read scripture, I can begin to internalize it, roll it around in my mind. What does he mean? We are seated with Christ. Who We, not me, but we. And we are seated right now with Christ. That can't be because it seems like I'm sitting in a sanctuary. But he says, we are right now in the present. You see what I'm doing? I'm mulling it around in my mind and I'm starting to imagine what it might be like to be also sitting with Christ in the heavenly. So it's important to have the portable knowledge of Scripture, and it's important to meditate on it. Someone has told me that, uh, that uh, testimony was an important part of this. When we say things with our mouth, we reinforce the assumptions that we have. Someone has said, reflection. We can listen to someone like right now. When people listen to me preach, uh, they will often show me their notes, and the notes that they have written is everything I said. But this isn't the purpose of taking notes. You don't need to listen to what, well, I shouldn't say it that way. You, you don't need to remember what I said. What you need to remember is the voice that is inside of you speaking while I'm talking. We have been trained to listen to every other voice except the one inside of us. And sometimes the one inside of us is loud and clear. And so while I'm talking, God may say things inside of you that are more important. Write that down. Last week when uh, Eric was preaching, I'm over, I didn't say anything, write anything for 20 minutes. Sorry, it was all memorable. But I didn't write any of it down. Then 20 minutes in, I thought, I got this. Knowing equals doing. I can't do what I don't know, but I don't know what I have not done. That was all I needed. That was the whole sermon. Yours was better, but that's what I needed. That that moment was something that I could latch onto. Now, those are my notes, not his notes. It's that internal reflection. You still with me? Please be with me. This last part is what I want to talk about today. It's this faith. Faith, every time we mention it inside of a church, I hear the same thing. Ah, we walk by faith and not by sight. But faith is not the absence of sight. Faith is not the absence of reason or knowledge. Faith is an engagement of the will. Can I remind you that faith is a substance? The word is hypostasis. Faith is the real being, the very essence of a thing hoped for. One never has faith instead of the thing he wants. Rather, as he practices faith in the thing he wants... He has it now. Somehow he doesn't have to wait. 
The reality of it has already been front-loaded into the present moment. It is substantial. Faith is a conviction. It's an evidence, says Hebrews chapter 11. One of the things we were taught in our schools is that science is hard, measurable, repeatable, and therefore science is real. And it is. But science is not everything that's real. We have also been taught that if something involves faith, then it is softer. It's more subjective. It's more internal. And therefore, more likely to be wrong. But in fact, science has been wrong as much as faith has. Because our knowledge is always learning. When someone has faith, he is simply accessing another source of knowledge. He is learning things that reason and science and research can't prove to him. It's not less real. It's just another body of knowledge, another source of reality. A.W. Tozer used to say, God gave us eyes to see a sunrise ears to hear a song, a tongue to taste an apple. But one must be careful to use the faculty God gave us to apprehend the thing it was designed to apprehend. You cannot hear a sunrise. That's not what the faculty is for. You cannot taste a song. No, no. If you want to apprehend the song, you have to use the faculty that was designed to apprehend that song. And there are things in this world every bit as real as the things we consider hard science then cannot be apprehended with the same faculties. So when we use faith, we are simply applying the faculty, the soul, the heart, to apprehend the things it was designed to apprehend. Are we clear? Some of you will write emails, write them. My name is Emily Vermilia at... <laughs> Which means that faith is learned. It's a muscle. leads to this last story. This story that you heard read, a Jesus touching a man's eyes and he can't see clearly, is so embarrassing for some Christians that uh, they scarcely refer to it at all. Some scholars, in fact, have even suggested that the reason the story appears in Mark and not in Matthew and Luke is because Matthew and Luke are embarrassed. <laughs> Jesus was off his game on that day. Took him two touches, not one. I, for one, am thrilled that this story is included, and I'll tell you why. First, the story. It's real quick. There were some friends who brought a blind man to Jesus. He did not come himself. That we know of, he didn't even want to see on that day. But he had tenacious friends who wanted him to see. And they brought him to Jesus and they begged him. And the word is perpetual. They didn't ask him. They kept nagging Jesus 
Touch him. Heal him. Come on, heal him. You've got to do this. Finally, Jesus took the man by the hand and he led him outside the village. And when he got outside the village, he spit in the man's eyes. <laughs> That's gross. I'm aware that every miracle worker in that day used saliva as part of their miracle. It was believed that a person's saliva was an extension of their being. One writer called it condensed breath. <laughs> it's still gross. <laughs> he spit in the man's eyes and then he said to the man, do you see anything? The man said, I see men like trees and they're walking. And Jesus touched the man a second time, and his eyes were opened, and he saw everything clearly. Brendan Burns says a better translation of the original language is, when he touched him the second time, he stared, eyes wide open. And he saw everything just like it was. Can I make a few observations? First, it seems to suggest that the miracle of seeing sometimes occurs in stages. Now you see why I like the story. It doesn't all happen at once for everybody. That's good because there's days when I feel like the blind guy. I see more than I saw, but I do not see everything clearly. Second, it suggests that when you see everything clearly, you see it as it is. To see everything clearly is to see what Jesus saw. It is to see reality. Let me say this in slow motion. Until you see reality, men are still like trees walking. You see it vaguely. You have the right language. You've got some categories. You have a little bit of knowledge, but you haven't put it all together. Yes, there are such things as men, and there are such things as trees. But men are not trees in reality, and trees never walk except in Lord of the Rings in reality. Yes? Are you with me? So you see something, and what you see isn't completely nuts, but you do not see reality as it is. When your eyes are completely opened, then you see things as they really are, not the way you've seen them all of your life. And the third observation is that if you're still in that state where you see things, but only vaguely. I'm just now beginning to understand. Be honest about it and stay with him. Don't do the Sunday school thing. Do you see anything clearly? Yep, I'm good. And go on your, don't do that, man. Tell him what you see. Say, I'm starting to see some things, but I still don't see, Jesus, what you see. Because I don't call that what you call it. I have another name for that. I have another way of acting. I have another reality. I do not have your reality. It is better for you to do that and stay with him because fourth, Jesus will always finish what he started. He who began a good work in you will be faithful. 
The religion you've heard is Jesus died, be good. But I say, faithful is he who called you. He will do it. Yes, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to do what pleases him. You couldn't even want to were it not for him. So you sure can't do it were it not for him. Jesus will finish what he started. How many of you people are now feeling like, man, I'm sort of the blind dude, man, because I'm starting to see some things. But I'll see. So I left this story asking myself, what is it that I see but not clearly? What is it Jesus is still trying to show me that because of my past or the way that I think, I don't see it? You don't have to wait for long. Because immediately after this miracle is a series of encounters that Jesus runs into. And each encounter reveals that a person can see, but he can't see clearly. The first conversation he has is with Peter. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. So he sees. Room with my mic. Hang on, I'll be with you in a second. He sees. He sees by making a statement that no other disciple has made. You're the Christ. That's progress. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Messiah must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And then on the third day, he would rise again. And Peter took him aside and said, that'll never happen to you. Ah. So you don't see clearly. This is not Peter's problem alone. This is ours. And the subject is not the Messiah. The subject is our enemies. Peter has no trouble believing Jesus is the Messiah. But he can't imagine a Messiah who would rule by loving his enemies instead of crushing them. The only model he has in his mind is, if somebody is opposing you, then you have to overcome them and force them to submit. It never occurs to him that to suffer at the hands of your enemies is the most redemptive thing you can do. Martin Luther King was almost right. He was almost there when he said, we believe unmerited suffering is redemptive. Jesus went further and said, it isn't the suffering alone. It's the loving. It is the loving of your persecutors that actually redeems them. Do you see our problem? We have no trouble singing Jesus is Lord. We just don't like his version of Messiahship. And so we see, but we do not see clearly. We still, too many of us, handle our enemies in the way Peter would have, not in the way he did. Right after that, he has a conversation with two disciples who run up and they said, Jesus, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us. So we told him to quit. Literally what he said was, he is not in our circle. He's not in our tribe. 
Jesus says, well, you're starting to see something because you see that there are teams, there are sides, but you still don't know who your players are. You still don't know who's on your side of things. You still don't know that God has people in faraway places everywhere, and you don't even like some of them. And so what he's asking the disciples to do is to move the boundaries. So they see that there are boundaries, but they're blind to where the boundaries are. They don't have anybody in their circle who isn't like them. Right after that, the disciples are having a conversation, lagging behind. Jesus is walking on his way to the cross. And they're arguing amongst themselves. Jesus turns and says to them, what are you arguing about? And they wouldn't say it because they were arguing about which of them was the greatest. <laughs> so Jesus takes a child and stands the child in their midst and says, if you want to be great, then you have to be little like this child. Later on, some women bring their children to Jesus so he'll bless them and the disciples get in the way and they, they're thinking, we're doing kingdom work here. We're not have to think about children. And Jesus points to the child and says, but the child is the kingdom. He's not in the way of the kingdom. He is the kingdom. When you handle... What you have, like a child, you are closer to the king. How do you handle power? Because it's possible to believe that Jesus is Lord and still hold on to power. The disciples see something. They see that there is a kingdom coming, but they do not see the way that it works. They don't know how power is got. They don't know what you do with it. They don't know how you reproduce it. They have virtually everything else wrong. So it's possible to be Christian even a long time and still have a fallen view of power. Last, just before Jesus finishes the jersey or, uh, journey, a man came up with money. He had a lot of money and he said, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life. How do I get the life of God inside of me? So we see, partly, <laughs> Jesus said, you know the Ten Commandments, and he cites six of them. Here's what the guy says. He said, I know the Ten Commandments. I kept, I kept everything you just said since I was a boy, which puts him ahead of most of us. And Jesus says, there's one more. Take everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. So the man sees who Jesus is, good teacher, eternal life. What he doesn't see is the true value of his possessions. He still believes possessions are to be held and used for oneself. But what would happen if you would see the real value of things, you'd unload them. 
you dumb load them. I believe that. Like the old man in Schindler's List, you may get to the end and realize it was not that we gave away, it was what you kept and could have given away that will bother you the most. What if you could see it now? Mm, you'd unload. I've given you four places where I believe we have faith, but we do not yet see. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to identify, if you would, one of these places, our enemies, our friends, our power, or our possessions. One area where you are still trusting in things you've believed all of your life. And I'm asking you in that area to put a little weight on something Jesus said. We have no trouble knowing what Jesus said about every one of these categories. We know what he said about enemies. We just don't believe him. And we know what he said about power and money. We just don't believe it. And so I'm asking you to say, God, you might be wrong about this, but it's possible that you know something that I don't know. And it's possible that you always have my best interest in mind. And so I am going to practice one thing in this area of power or this area of my enemies. I'm going to put a little weight on it and see if it works. And we'll do this for a month. Would you bow your head? Take a moment and reflect over those things. What has Jesus said about your enemies that you still find it hard to believe? What has he said about your friends, your circle? You still haven't tried it. What has he said maybe about power? I realize if you're 25, 30 years old, you don't have a lot of it yet. But you will. And the older you are, the more you get. What has he said about your power that you want to believe? And what has he said about your stuff, your possessions? Does Jesus know something you don't know? Does he really want you to be happy? And could he be right? Would you put a little weight on these things this week?